All right. So uh, the first slide in your note there, the, the, two, the two trinities explained. The two trinities explained. Um, first of all, we see that there is a, a holy trinity. There is a holy trinity. I wanted to start tonight. I almost started with the evil trinity. But then I thought, no, before we look at the evil trinity, we need to look at the, the genuine one uh, so that we can, we can be educated by the truth, right? We need to understand what the truth is. And then we can go in and look at the counterfeit. But the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the most wonderfully complex doctrines in Scripture. In simple terms, the Trinity states that God is one divine being who exists in three distinct persons. He is one in three. The great hymn states, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. But are there actually any biblical passages to back up this teaching? Because if you'll notice, the word Trinity is never actually used in the pages of Scripture. So how can we support it and how can we defend it from the biblical text? Now, what I'm not going to do tonight is try to prove that Jesus, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit are all God. Okay? I'm going to assume that you believe that, and I'm not going to take the time to try to prove it in our lesson tonight. That's a little bit outside of the scope of what we're trying to do. So all I'm trying to do is just give you a couple of simple evidences that the Trinity does exist on the pages of Scripture. And so let's look there. Point number one, the evidence of reality. The evidence of reality. The first evidence that we see is the account of Jesus's baptism. The account of Jesus's baptism. If you were to look in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the text says this. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. So when we see Jesus baptized, we see all three members of the Trinity here on full display. You have God the Father who is speaking from heaven. You have Jesus Christ who is in the water being baptized and you have the Holy Spirit of God descending like a dove. So all three equally God and yet three distinct persons. The second place we can see it, although it's on more pages than this, I'm just giving you a couple. But we have the Great Commission formula. When Jesus Christ commissioned his disciples and by extension us, the local church with the Great Commission, he provided us with a baptism formula that speaks to the truth of the triunity of God. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Okay, so the baptism formula. And, and scripture is full of evidence for the truth of the Trinity. Uh, even though the word, like I mentioned, is never found on the pages of scripture, God's word is abundant, abundant in proofs for its reality. These are just a couple, a couple of evidences. If you want more, come and talk to me afterwards. I can give you more, all right? Now, um, I actually adjusted this on your notes a little bit, and I apologize for that, but I, th I, I thought last night of a better way that I could explain this. So number two there is going to be the examination of their responsibilities. The examination of their responsibilities. Well, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. They have different roles within the Godhead. They have different things that they, that they do. In this way, and when I teach this, when I teach this chapter in Continue, when I explain the Trinity, I say that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are equal in essence, but they are different in function. Okay, they're equal in essence, but they're different in function. What does that mean? Well, that means that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equally God. The Holy Spirit is God, just as Jesus Christ is God, just as God the Father is God. They are all equally God, and yet they do different things. Okay, look at, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. It says this, For through him, that's Christ, we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. 
Okay, so all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in that verse, but they are all doing different things. Okay, God the Father is the source. He is the one from whom all blessings flow. And Jesus Christ is the channel through Jesus Christ flow the blessings from God the Father to the believer. And the Holy Spirit is the active agent who applies those blessings to the believer. So you can see that. Micah, can you go back to Ephesians 2.18? Okay, look at this. So he says, for through him, Jesus, he is the channel. We have access, how? By one spirit. So the spirit is the one that's actually making it happen. To who? Unto the Father. He is the source of all things. Okay, let me try to give you a little bit more support for this. Okay, God the Father is the source. From him flow all good gifts and blessings. He is creator and sustainer and provider. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, from whom is no variableness or shadow of turning. And God the Son is the, is, is the channel. The gifts that God gives to believers flow down from God through Jesus Christ. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. How did he do it? In Christ. So the blessings that God gives flow through Jesus Christ to the believer. If you keep reading through the chapter and you'll see that phrase, in Christ or through Christ or by Christ, over and over again. In fact, no less than nine times Paul mentions that in Ephesians chapter 1. So as Paul describes all the blessings that we have in Christ, all the blessings that flow down from God, he makes it very clear that they flow through Jesus Christ to the believer. By the way, that's an incredible motivation for us to stay connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John chapter 15, when he talks about he, he is the vine, we are the branches, we need to stay connected to him so that those blessings can flow from God through us, through him to us. All right, and then third, God the Holy Spirit is the agent. So the Holy Spirit of God is the one who actively indwells and works on the believer's behalf. Our blessings and gifts flow from God through Christ and then are applied to us by the Holy Spirit. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul's talking about the believer's pre-salvation condition. He says, and such were some of you, but now what? Well, now you are washed and you're sanctified and you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. But how did it actually happen? And by the Spirit of God. So Jesus Christ made it possible. The Holy Spirit's the one that applied it to your life. Okay, he's the, active, he's the active agent inside of the Godhead. So all three of these individuals, okay, all three members of the Godhead have different roles, although they are all equally God. Now, this is number three. This is the one that you didn't have in your notes. So just jot this one in the margin somewhere. Okay, the expression of their relationship. Okay, the expression of their, of their relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a functional order of priority. Okay, and what I mean by that is that there are some members of the Godhead that are over others. Okay, now, they are all equally God. But in the roles that they serve, okay, there is a functional order of priority. Okay, so we see here that the Son is subordinate to God the Father. That means that Jesus Christ does the will of God the Father. Jesus was sent by the Father and he lived to do his will. His sinless life and his substitutionary death on the cross provided the way for man to dwell in harmony with God. Okay, John 14, 28 says, You have heard how I say unto, or I saw unto you, and I go away, and I come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice, because I said I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Okay, Jesus teaches this. 
So you have the Son being subordinate to the Father, and then the Holy Spirit is subordinate to the Son. So the Holy Spirit answers to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit exists, and His role and His function is to magnify and glorify the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit was sent by Jesus to be a comforter and helper to believers after He departed into heaven. This provides incredible peace and security for us as Christians. Because the Holy Spirit's purpose is to glorify and to lift up the name of Christ. The Holy Spirit is the person who helps men find and follow Jesus. That is his job. And that is his role. In John 14, 26, just a couple verses earlier, Jesus says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. So, it's his responsibility to help. So Jesus taught the disciples these things, and he says the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to help you remember the things that I, that I taught you about myself. Okay, his, his job is to help man find and follow Jesus Christ. So the, the doctrine of the Trinity is a, is a precious truth. It's foundational to Christian faith and practice. But true to his deceitful colors, Satan attempts to take this teaching and to twist it to his own ends. So we're going to look at the evil trinity, and we're going to see how they work, and they try to band together to overthrow God. So that brings us to the evil trinity, the evil trinity. This is Satan's crude imitation of the one true God. And it consists of three members, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. We can find much of the teaching on these three individuals in Revelation 12 and 13. We're going to look at each of them quickly. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 13, or uh, Revelation chapter 12, I'm sorry. Um, because I'm going to come back to these passages a couple of different times, and um, I want you to be able—I want you to be able to see them as we study together. So, what I want you to see quickly as we look through this is I want you to see letter A there—the rebellion, the rebellion of its members, the rebellion of its members, and the first member of the evil trinity is Satan, the dragon. Satan has always desired to be God. Sometime after creation and before the fall of man, Satan and one-third of the angels who rebelled with him were cast out of heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 12, look at verses 3 and 4. It says this, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew a third part of the stars, that's the angels, out of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, that's the nation of Israel, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Satan warred against God. And then Satan came and he attempts to thwart God, God's purposes at every plan. He used Herod here. This is what it's talking about when it's seeking to devour the child of the nation of Israel. He used Herod to destroy how many Jewish boys in an attempt to kill the Lord Jesus Christ upon his birth. And yet he was unsuccessful. But we see him continually working to thwart the plan of God. Near the midpoint of the tribulation period, Michael and his army will fight against Satan and finally kick him out of heaven. Look down at verse 7. It says, There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So there's going to be a war, and Satan is finally cast out of heaven for the final time, will no longer be allowed access before the throne of God. Now, in an attempt to thwart God's plan of establishing an earthly kingdom... Satan attempts to annihilate the Jews in the second half of the tribulation with the most violent genocide the world has ever seen. But Satan end, Satan's end is sure. After the millennial kingdom, which we'll discuss in a couple of weeks, 
Scripture teaches that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire where he will be punished for all of eternity for his crimes against God and against his saints. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Yeah, but Satan is the first member of the evil trinity. The second member of the evil trinity is the Antichrist, also known as the beast in the book of Revelation. The Antichrist is the embodiment of Satan during the first half of the tribulation period. He is described as a beast coming out of the sea, which is typically used to describe the Gentile nations. So he's probably, he's probably a Gentile individual from Eastern Europe when you look at all the teaching put together. I don't have time to, to dive into all of it tonight. Okay, but he's probably a Gentile from, from Eastern Europe. He's represented as a combination of many different types of animals, probably referring to his ability to be the Renaissance man of all Renaissance men. He's gonna be a chameleon, expertly adapting to any and all situations as he rises to power. Near the midpoint of the tribulation, we discussed this last week, he will die or at least be to the point of death. And at that point, he will either be empowered by or indwelt by Satan himself, who provides him with the power to persecute both Israel and the tribulation saints. You say, well, prove all this from the text. Flip over to Revelation chapter 13. Let me try to show you. Okay, don't just take my word for it. We need to look at it in the text. Okay, look at Revelation chapter 13. And let's look at this beginning in verse two. This describes the beast. The beast which I saw was likened to a leopard. His feet were as the feet of a bear. His mouth was as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. So this combination style beast just speaks to his ability, his adaptability. And I saw one of the heads as it were wounded to death. This is when he's nearly killed or killed during the tribulation period. And his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshiped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? And who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given to him to continue 40 and two months for the second half of the tribulation period. But the Antichrist will be defeated at Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. And at that time, he will be taken and cast into the lake of fire to be punished for his rebellion and his crimes against God and the tribulation saints. You can read that in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 20. The third member of the evil trinity is the false prophet. The false prophet. This to me is one of the most intriguing figures in all of the book of Revelation. Just as the Holy Spirit points men to find and follow Jesus, the false prophet points men to the Antichrist. He's gonna encourage men to trust in and worship the Antichrist. He is a master, a master of deception. Scripture describes him as having the appearance of the lamb, but the voice of a dragon. You can read that in Revelation 13 and verse 11. He looks the part of a genuine disciple, but he has the demeanor of a wild beast and he spews the lies of Satan out of his mouth. During the tribulation period, the Antichrist will do miracles. I'm sorry, the false prophet will do miracles that mimic the miracles of God's prophets. Look at, look at verses 13. Are you in Revelation 13? Look at verses 13 and 14. This is talking about the false prophet. And he doeth great wonder so that he make fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. That reminds you of anything? Okay, Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18, standing on top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven. The false prophet is going to call down fire from heaven in the sight of men in the tribulation period. Just because it's miraculous doesn't mean it's from God. Okay, and then in verse 14, he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had a wound by the sword and did live. So he does these miracles to point men 
to follow and to worship the Antichrist. The false prophet will also be the one that forces the unsaved men of the earth to receive the mark of the beast. Look down in verses 16 and 17. He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the false prophet is the one kind of behind the scenes, pulling the strings, making sure that things are being driven to the Antichrist and allowing him to rise to power and continue to reign in the second half of the tribulation period. The false prophet will also be one of the first two inhabitants of the lake of fire with the beast. His end is sure and he will be punished and judged for his crimes against God. So why does the evil trinity exist? Okay, this is letter B there, the revealing, or number two, the revealing of its mission. The revealing of its mission. Why does the evil trinity exist? Why does Satan create this coalition? Well, Satan is the anti-God. The antichrist, surprise, surprise, is the antichrist. And the false prophet is the anti-spirit. The purpose of this unholy trinity is to war against God and his purposes. They will fight to the death to try to overthrow God and his agenda. Satan's purpose is the same as it was at his initial rebellion. He believes that he should be God and he is actively working to usurp God the Father. But we know that God and his purposes are sure. Uh, We'll take the time to read it. Look at Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15 with me. Okay, this describes Satan's fall from heaven. It says this, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Satan wants to be God. And he thinks that he deserves the role that is reserved for God the Father alone. But, but, his end is short. Look at what this last verse says. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Our God reigns supreme and triumphant, okay? Because he is the one true God. And Satan is just a counterfeit, just a counterfeit. Now, let's compare these two trinities quickly, okay? Get your pens out, because I'm gonna give you a lot of scripture texts, okay? So I'm gonna encourage you to jot some of these down. You can go back and you need to do Acts 17, 11 and work through these on your own time, okay? I'm, I'm just gonna hit you with them and then we're gonna move on, okay? So get your pen out, get ready to write and jot some notes down. If you need help, because I'm about to give you a lot, all right? So if you need help with this afterwards, come and talk to me. I'm happy to, I'm happy to help you with this. Okay, but I, I want to compare these. I want to compare these individuals because there are individuals who are going to worship the Antichrist like a savior. And there are going to be individuals who worship the dragon as they should worship God the Father. Okay, and there were some that will follow the leading of the false prophet thinking he is the genuine spirit. Okay, there's similarities here, but yet when we examine them side by side, we see the one for the counterfeit that it truly is. Okay, so let's take, let's take just a minute and work through this. Okay, so God the Father versus the devil. God the Father versus the devil. Notice, first of all, the comparison of worship. The comparison of worship. God the Father demands our worship because he's the only one that is worthy of it. Because he is our creator and our savior and our sustainer, he claims the right to be worshiped. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 14, he says, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God demands worship. Satan desires our worship. He desires our worship. He wants nothing more to be acknowledged and worshiped as God. 
That's why during the temptation of Christ, he told Christ that he could avoid the pain of the cross if only he would bow down and worship. You remember the story? Matthew chapter four, verses eight and nine, it says the devil taketh him up to an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to them, all these things will I give thee if thou what? Will fall down and worship me. Satan desires worship, but he's not God. He can't demand it in the way that God can. Satan wants worship, but he, can't, he cannot claim it in the same way that God the Father does because there's only one true God. Second, notice the comparison of power. The comparison of power. God is omnipotent. It's a big word. That means that God is all-powerful. All-powerful. Okay, God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. That means that God cannot be any stronger than he is right now. Okay, God can't go out and lift weights and become stronger than he is right now. Why? Because he has all power. He is all-powerful. He cannot become stronger than he is. Okay, Psalm 115 and verse 3 says, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatever he hath pleased. God's in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Satan is a being of great power, but he is not omnipotent. He doesn't have the ability to thwart God's plans and purposes. Satan is a formidable opponent, but he is unable to overcome God. This is why it's crucial for believers to put on God's holy armor so that they can stand against the devil's attacks. Ephesians 6, 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Listen, you can't do that outside of putting on the armor of God. Okay, if we think that we can stand against Satan in our own strength, we're fools. We need to put on the armor of God so that we can resist and stand. By the way, that's what we're teaching the kids this coming week in BBS. I think that's a pretty crucial lesson for them to learn in the world in which we live. Okay, third, notice the comparison of knowledge. The comparison of knowledge. God is, I'm going to throw another big one at you. Okay, God is omniscient. Omniscient. That means that God is all-knowing. God is all-knowing. Only God is omniscient. Only God has all knowledge. God knows all things. He sees all things and he acts in accordance with his knowledge. And God desires to bring men into a knowledge of the truth. John chapter, or first John, I'm sorry, chapter three and verse 20 says, for if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knoweth all things. He knoweth all things. Satan has great knowledge, but he doesn't know all things. He's a created being. He knows a lot but his knowledge is finite. His goal is not to bring men into an understanding of the truth, but to blind men in the darkness and in the depravity of their own minds. So while God desires for knowledge to bring men into the light of the truth, Satan desires to use his knowledge in order to blind men and to keep them in darkness. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan wants to blind men and keep them in darkness. Fourth, notice the comparison of authority. The comparison of authority. God is the sovereign ruler over heaven. All things fall under his scope and his dominion. There is nothing that is outside of his rule. He is sovereign God. Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse six says, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven and rulest not thou over the kingdoms of the heathen? These are rhetorical questions, by the way. The answer to all of these questions is yes, and in thine hand is not their power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? And the answer to those questions are yes, yes, and yes. God does rule over all things. Satan is called the God of this world. Satan has a kingdom in this world in which he operates. He has power and dominion over unbelieving men and he fights hard to keep them blinded to the truth of the gospel. 
But Satan only operates in the dominion and the parameters that God the Father allows him to. Okay? Satan, Satan cannot go outside the bounds that God allows him to operate in. Colossians 1.13, it talks about when we are saved, Christ delivered us from the power of the kingdom of darkness, and he has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Okay? So that's God the Father versus Satan, the dragon. Now let's look at a comparison of Jesus Christ and the Antichrist. The Antichrist really works hard to imitate Jesus Christ. He really works hard to imitate Jesus Christ. Let's look at a couple of things here. Notice, first of all, the comparison of their origin. The comparison of their origin. Jesus Christ descended from heaven to earth. He was the word who was made flesh and dwelled among us. He humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. He came to serve. John 6, 38 says, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him that sent me. The Antichrist doesn't ascend from heaven. He ascends from the abyss. He ascends from the abyss. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7 says, And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war with them. The Antichrist comes in pride and arrogance and with blasphemous allegations against God. He comes not to serve. He comes to subjugate. So their purpose is completely different. That brings us to the comparison of their purpose. That's number two. Our Lord Jesus Christ came as a sacrificial lamb who would take upon himself the sins of all men. He came to be the perfect payment by which all men can be saved by grace through faith. John 1, 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. The Antichrist comes not as a savior, but as a savage. He's depicted as a beast, one who will come to destroy and to conquer and to rule. He's going to attempt to bend men to his will by deception and by force and by manipulation. There's no grace under his rule. There is only destruction. There's only destruction. Notice, third, the comparison of their power. The comparison of their power. Jesus receives his power from the Father. And in fact, it's the power that he receives from the Father that enables us to go and fulfill the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. The Antichrist, on the other hand, receives his power from Satan. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4, they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And this causes men to worship, to worship the Antichrist. Notice the comparison of their worship. The comparison of their worship. Jesus Christ is going to receive worship from all true believers. They will see the king in his glory and they will worship him. That's what uh, Philippians chapter 2 verses 10 and 11 talk about. Right? There's a day coming when every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming. Everybody will see Jesus and worship him as King of Kings. The Antichrist is only going to receive worship from the unbelieving world. He'll desire worship from all men, but he's not going to receive it. This is why he's going to persecute the tribulation saints and Israel. He's trying to manipulate. He's trying to force their worship, but he's going to be unsuccessful. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So they are both worshipped. Jesus Christ, at one day, he'll receive the worship of all. The Antichrist is only going to receive the worship from those that he has deceived. Notice the comparison of their instruction. Jesus Christ is the greatest of teachers. He taught with power, with authority. He brought men into the light of the truth. 
There's never been another teacher like him. That's what Matthew 7, 28 and 29, the people were astonished at his doctrine because he taught them as one having authority and not as the boring scribes. The boring is there in the Greek. You just have to go read between the lines. All right, so Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus Christ, he's a great teacher. He brought men into the truth. The Antichrist is not a teacher. He's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. He'll instruct men. Yeah, but he's going to pull the wool over their eyes. They're going to see him as a savior and fail to recognize that he's leading them to their doom. Notice finally the comparison of their brides. The comparison of their brides. The bride of Christ is the church. He loves her and he gave himself for her. And Jesus is going to glorify his church and present it to himself as a clean, beautiful bride on her wedding day. He describes this in Ephesians chapter five. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Why? That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The Antichrist is going to be married to a harlot wife. We talked about this last week. The state-enabled church that he rides to power in the first half of the tribulation period. And rather than glorifying her, he decides to destroy her when she stops being useful. Eventually, the sham of their partnership is exposed, and the Antichrist will destroy his harlot wife and exalt himself as the object of worship. Listen, there's many ways in which Jesus Christ and the Antichrist are similar, but we ha- I think when close examination, you have to draw the conclusion that the Antichrist is nothing but a perverted distortion of our Lord. Let's look at the false prophet. Let's look at the false prophet versus the Holy Spirit of God. Notice first the comparison of their leading a comparison of their leading. The Holy Spirit of God leads men to the truth by pointing them to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to lead men to the Son of God. Okay? So John 16, it says, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. How? Well, he's not going to speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear. So the things that Jesus Christ has taught, that he's going to speak, and he will show you all things to come. And then when scripture was completed, the Holy Spirit uses the word to lead men into the image of Jesus Christ. The false prophet seduces men to idolatry and evil deeds. His goal is to lead men to worship the Antichrist. Notice also the comparison of their ministry. The Holy Spirit exists to glorify the Lord. He wants to help men find and follow Jesus. He's actively working to bring men to salvation and to help them grow in sanctification. John 16, 14, the next verse says, he, the Holy Spirit, shall glorify me. For he shall receive a mind and he's gonna show it unto you. The false prophet exists to glorify the Antichrist. He's his hype man. He runs his PR campaign. He exalts and he glorifies the Antichrist and he pushes all men toward idolizing and worshiping him. Revelation chapter, we already looked at Revelation chapter 13 and verse 12, but he says he causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast. He pushes men to worship the Antichrist. Notice also the comparison of their fire. I was talking to Brother Matt about this earlier. All right, the comparison of their fire. Listen, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended as tongues of fire and he dwelt the apostles. Okay, you remember the story? The purpose of this fire was to equip and empower the apostles to fulfill the great commission given to them by Christ. And on that day, the apostles go out and preach and over 3,000 people get saved and a whole new institution is founded, the New Testament local church. Okay, that, that was the purpose. The false prophet, we already mentioned, it's going to call down fire from heaven. 
But the purpose of this fire is not to equip and empower, but to manipulate and to deceive. This miracle will be done to drive men into the cult of the Antichrist. It leads men to death and to destruction. Notice the comparison of their purpose. The Holy Spirit brings life to men through the work of regeneration. Listen, the whole, every time somebody gets saved, it's a miracle because somebody who is dead is brought to life. That's why Ephesians tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You go down to verses four and five, it says, but God in his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive in Christ. By grace, we are saved, right? So, so the Holy Spirit brings life to men. That's his purpose. It's the life-saving work that he gives. The false prophet doesn't come to bring life. He comes to bring death. All those who refuse to bend their will to his in the worship of the Antichrist are going to be put to death. The false prophet is going to cause the blood of the martyrs to flow during the course of the tribulation. Revelation 13 and verse 15, it says, and he had power to give life into the image of the beast. This is talking about the false prophet. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause that many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So if you do not worship the image of the beast, in the tribulation period, the false prophet calls for your execution. He comes not to bring life. He comes to bring death. And notice finally the comparison of their sealing. The comparison of their sealing. Part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he seals men to God. The fact that he lives inside of us stakes a claim that we belong to God himself. When God gave the Holy Spirit to believers, he provided a down payment on our future inheritance in heaven. So listen, when he gave us the Holy Spirit, he says, listen, I'm giving you the Spirit now to show you that I'm good for the rest, right? He's good for the rest because we have the Holy Spirit. It's the guarantee that the promises of God will come to pass. No one can break the seal that God provides for believers. I, I gotta read it to you. Ephesians 1.13, it says, in whom you also trusted. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, the false prophet, he seals men as well. But he seals men not with indwelling, but he seals men with the mark of the beast. He's going to force all of those who reject and rebel against God to receive a mark either in their right hands or their foreheads. This is going to allow him to control and manipulate the world's economic system, providing a platform for the Antichrist rise to power. Unlike the seal of the Spirit, which provides assurance of blessings to come, the mark of the beast guarantees only death and separation from God. Listen. There's an evil trinity that is coming and it stands adamantly opposed to everything that God stands for. It's the enemy of God and it leads men to death and destruction. Satan tries to copy and pervert and distort the truth. Okay, now, that was a lot of information, yes? Okay, now, we're gonna move out of the information phase and we're gonna move into the equipping phase. Okay, so there's a question that we need to answer. Now, you and I, we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal savior are not going to have to deal with the unholy trinity in the, in the tribulation, okay? The rapture of the church, right? Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But the Bible does tell us that many false prophets are running around today. So we need to answer the question, how do we identify counterfeits? Satan, Satan loves to counterfeit God. And Satan comes disguised, he can be a roaring lion, but he also comes disguised as an angel of light. So how do we identify counterfeits? How do we look? There's so much, listen, if it's not the truth, it's a lie, right? And so there's so much lying that is going on in our world and there's so many people that are being deceived and tricked and led to hell because they are not discerning and they don't have the ability to identify counterfeits. 
So does scripture give us any leading? Does scripture give us any guidance? I think that it does. Okay. Um, There's six basic characteristics that I'm going to tell you tonight of counterfeits. Some possess a few of these qualities. Others have more. But all false gospels will have at least a few of these elements woven into their teaching. Okay. So recognizing counterfeits. Recognizing counterfeits. Notice first, there is a proclamation of new truth. There is a proclamation of new truth. Claims of receiving new revelation from God outside of his word are rampant among counterfeit religions. These type of claims often attract new followers to a dynamic leader who claims to speak for God. And this new revelation can take various forms. Sometimes a man claims to be an apostle or a new type of prophet. Others claim to receive extra, extra biblical visions about God, and then they say, I have a vision, and as God's one true mouthpiece, I'm going to share this vision with you. Others have promoted new books that they claim are either on par with or even above the biblical text in terms of validity and authority. Listen, this flies in the face of the priesthood of the believer. You say, well, what is the priesthood of the believer? Okay, that's a good question. Let me take a minute and try to explain it to you. The priesthood of the believer simply means that all believers who are united to Christ through salvation, share in his status as a priest. Remember, in the Old Testament, people had to come to the priest, right, and then bring their offerings to the priest, and the priest would offer it to God. Jesus Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He is the priest. But when you and I get saved and we're united to Christ, we are now priests as well. We don't have to go to anybody in order to have access to God. We have access to God because we are in Christ. Okay, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. By the way, it was like the thickness of a phone book. Okay, that is an incredible, that is, that's a miracle. It's an incredible feat. Okay, but now believers have access to God. We, there's no special class of people who proclaim the knowledge of Christ to others. All believers have the responsibility and the right to read and interpret and apply the teaching of Scripture for themselves. This is why we believe in the disciple-making process. You have the responsibility to study the text of Scripture, put your arm around somebody else and say, hey, come follow me as I follow Christ. You say, prove it from the text. Okay, 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, study to show thy... Oh, I'm sorry. I'll get to that one in a second. 1 Peter 2.9. It says this. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, God has made us priests. And when people come and they say, listen, I have the answer, right? I've got it. God gave it just to me. You need to run. You need to run. It's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. God has given us everything he needs in his word. Is that hot in here for you guys? Man, I'm like sweating up here. Good night. Okay. Um, Secondly, the promise, the promise of new interpretations. The promise of new interpretations. Counterfeits often claim to believe in the Bible and historic Christian teachings. Okay, the Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, hey, you study the Bible, but you have to do it with studies in the scriptures. Okay, the Mormons say, hey, you can study the Bible, yes, but you need to do it with the Book of Mormon and with Doctrines and Covenants and with the Pearl of Great Price. They have more books than I know what to do with. All right, so you look at some of these things and, and they say, hey, yes, we believe in the Bible and something. But where these groups err is in their interpretation of the text. Some go out of their way to read their own theology back into the text, forcing it to say what they want it to. Okay? This, is why, this is why the Jehovah's Witnesses wrote their own Bible. 
Okay, it's called the New World Translation. And in it, they deny that Jesus Christ is God. So they rewrote John 1, 1 to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Why? Because that fits better with their theology. So they rewrite it and put it in there and say this is the inspired and errant Word of God. It's an interpretation issue. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the, sorry, I'm throwing out big words. It's the art and science of biblical interpretation. Okay, it's an interpretive issue. Other people deny the authority of Scripture altogether, saying that Scripture is invalid when it contradicts its group's teachings. Listen, we need to be wary of individuals who say things like, I have truth or an interpretation or a revelation that no one has ever heard before. There's nothing new under the sun, and God has given us everything that we need in his word. Jude chapter 3, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, which was, don't miss it, which was once delivered unto the saints. Okay, it's been given. We've got it. The Bible contains everything that we need for faith and practice. So if somebody comes and says, I have a new, I have a new word, I have a new revelation from God. Sign of a counterfeit. It's a sign of a counterfeit. Third, there's a preaching of a new Jesus. There's a preaching of a new Jesus. Many counterfeits deny the deity of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is fundamental to nearly every aspect of Christian doctrine. When you don't get Christ right, it impacts the rest of your theology. For example, by, this is why all the early church councils, when they were fighting over Jesus Christ, and they couldn't figure out like, how Jesus' deity and his humanity worked together, Right? By the way, you want the fancy theological term? I love teaching this one to kids. It's called the hypostatic union. Very simply, it means that Jesus Christ is 100% man and 100% God, two natures in one person. It's that simple. Okay? So Jesus Christ, 100% man, 100% God in one being. There's never been anybody like Jesus. But there was all these debates about how those things actually functioned. And there was so much work that was done to make sure that the church was holding the truth of what God's word teaches about Jesus Christ. Why? Because it impacts everything else that we believe. For example, the doctrine of Christ directly impacts your understanding of the Trinity. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, you don't have a Trinity. This is actually why many counterfeits reject the doctrine of the Trinity and as an additional consequence, they deny the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Mormons don't teach that the Holy Spirit is a person, they teach that Jesus is a force. Right? Kind of like electricity. Okay, so understand that when people preach a different Jesus, okay, it, it, it's a sure sign. It's a sure sign of a counterfeit. Fourth, there's a perversion of the genuine gospel. There's a perversion of the genuine gospel. Listen, there's only two religions in the world. Kerry Schmidt says this in his book, Done. How many of you guys read the book, Done? Okay, there's only two religions in the world. What are they? Do and done. That's it. I wasn't going to put you on the spot, Miss Becky. Don't worry. All right. Okay, y'all, you're good then, you're good then. All right, there's only two religions in the world, do and done. The do religions requires you to work to earn your salvation. Grace isn't sufficient. You have to put in effort in order to merit God's favor. But because grace is so central to the gospel message, it's impossible for a person to have a disorganized view of the gospel and not distort the gospel of grace. In Orthodox Christianity, we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Go read Paul's work in Galatians. He makes that explicitly clear. Salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ, period. Okay? Counterfeits always add works to the gospel, which Paul calls another gospel 
and a perversion. Galatians 1, 6 and 7 says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that calls you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Listen, in Galatia, there were men going around saying, hey, you need to be saved, yeah, but you have to be circumcised for God to truly save you. Okay, listen, if you're, I'm glad we don't fight over circumcision anymore, by the way, okay, but listen, if you were to add circumcision to the gospel, you don't have a true gospel because you're adding works to grace. And if you add works to grace, it's no longer grace. We can't have grace and works. Think about it this way. Okay, if I had a can of Dr. Pepper, oh, that sounds good and I added a drop of poison to it, would I drink it? No. You say it's close. It's only a drop or two. What's the big deal? I'm not going to drink it. Yeah, it's going to kill me. Matt said it so succinctly. I appreciate that. Right? It will kill me. I'm not going to drink it. Hey, listen, if we add works to the gospel, we contaminate the entire gospel. If we add anything to grace, it ceases to be grace. Counterfeits pervert the truth of the gospel. Fifth, there's a presentation of unstable doctrine. Presentation of unstable doctrine. Listen, many counterfeits haven't even been around for thousands of years. And for the short time that they are in existence, their theology tends to alter itself pretty drastically. For example, the Mormons have some pretty nasty stuff in their history. Racism, polygamy, chauvinism, just to name a few. But if you were to talk to a Mormon on the street today, they would deny that they believe those things at all. Why? Well, because somebody told them, hey, we don't believe that anymore. And in the short time that they've been around, their theology has shifted and it's changed drastically. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that we serve an unchanging God. And I'm thankful that our faith has remained unchanged since the days of the apostles. It's an incredible assurance of the truth of our faith. Finally here, there's the persecution of Christ's bride. The persecution of Christ's bride. Many counterfeits are openly hostile toward established biblical churches. They view them as apostates. One man said it this way, almost all systems of authority and cult organizations indoctrinate their disciples to believe that anyone who opposes their beliefs cannot be motivated by anything other than satanic force of blind prejudice and ignorance. So they look at us and they say, well, you're just bigots, right? Haters, right? We don't, we don't understand it. We don't get it. And by saying that they are wrong, okay, we become the problem. So understand that. This hostility serves to isolate members in counterfeit religions from true believers, sometimes even at the expense of long-term friendships and family relationships. So how do we resist? This is where we'll finish tonight. Okay, so six characteristics of counterfeits. Okay, log those away. Mark them down. Because false teaching is becoming more and more prevalent in our world. And we need to be careful. Satan comes disguised as an angel of light. Hey, we need to make sure that we know what the truth is. So how do we resist? How do we resist counterfeits? First of all, we need to immerse ourselves in the truth. We need to immerse ourselves in the truth. You know how you identify a counterfeit bill? You don't do it by studying counterfeits. Well, you do. But let me tell you what you got to do before that. First thing you do is you study the original. You study what's authentic. And so people in the Department of the Treasury, they spend almost all their time studying genuine bills and so when they see a counterfeit, it becomes very easy to identify. Okay? They immerse themselves in what is authentic, and then when they see what is fake, it's easy to identify. Christians need to immerse themselves in the truth of God's word so that they can recognize authentic truth and teaching. 
2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. Truth matters. Truth matters. Can I tell you, I saw a clip this week. It's from Bethel, Bethel Church. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, but it was from Bethel Church. And there was a woman, and she was teaching, and she said, Every believer has the gift of prophecy. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 12 tells me otherwise. Okay, you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it says God gave some the gift of prophecy. But he didn't give every believer the gift of prophecy. And then she went on to say, well, I teach a class on prophecy at our church, and I can teach you the spiritual gift of prophecy. Listen, spiritual gifts are gifts for a reason. You can train your spiritual gift, but you can't teach a spiritual gift that God didn't give you. And then she said, sometimes in our class in prophecy, we get it wrong, and that's okay. You know what? The book of Deuteronomy tells me that if you get a prophecy wrong, it calls you a false prophet. And it says the punishment for that is that you're stoned to death. Okay? So we look at this and say, but this is an individual that is standing up in a church on a platform much bigger than this one with a lot of people sitting in there, and they're all nodding along and agreeing. And what's she doing? She's leading people into heresy because there's a group of people there that don't immerse themselves in the truth. We need to study to show ourselves approved unto God. You know something else that was interesting when I was reading on this article about identifying counterfeit bills? The author said there was actually an interesting phenomenon a couple years ago. Um, and what happened was there were so many counterfeit hundreds that that's kind of what people panicked over. And so they got really, really good at identifying counterfeit $100 bills. But because of that, they spent less time focusing on the fives and 20s. And there was a lot of fives and counterfeit fives and 20s that snuck themselves into the system. So... Sometimes in the church, what we say is, well, as long as it's not a perversion of the gospel, like, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Can I tell you? I'll say it again. Truth matters. Truth matters. This is why when Rick Warren gets up in New Orleans in front of the Southern Baptist Convention and he says, we agree with 99% of the Baptist faith and message. We just disagree with the part that says that women can't be pastors. Is that really that big of a deal? And the answer is yes. Because God in his word says that that office is reserved for men. And that's the role and responsibility. And churches that don't agree and follow that teaching are in disobedience to God and his word. Okay, so, so we need to understand what the truth is. We need to immerse ourselves in the truth so that that way, when there's an attack against the truth, we know what the authentic and genuine article says. There's so much deception in our world today. And listen, I made the case last week, I think, that, that we are on the doorstep of the tribulation period. Jesus could come back at any time. And one of the marks of this is that there are false teachers that are rampant. And the world is being led to a place where they will be ripe for a worldwide deception. And so understand that we are living in a day and age where people don't really care about truth. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Well, listen, if what I say about your truth says that your truth is a lie, one of us is wrong. One of us is wrong. And the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. So we need to be people of the book. And if we're going to resist counterfeits, it means that we need to know our Bibles. We need to know our Bibles. Okay, let's put the screens down and let's spend time in the book, huh? Okay, let's be people of the book. Secondly, we need to invest ourselves in, our, in the mission. We need to invest ourselves in the mission. Counterfeits are rooted out by preaching the true gospel and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Listen, how are counterfeits overcome? 
Well, they're overcome by making true disciples. That's the way that Jesus intended it. That's why he gave us the Great Commission. We have the responsibility to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his men are saved and regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And as we put our arms around him and say, follow me as I follow Christ, men are changed by the truth. Yeah, that's the way that God intended it. The light overcomes darkness. If counterfeits are to be rooted out and resisted, we have to fight them with the truth. I think it's high time that the church of God committed to the mission of Jesus Christ and poured themselves into the work of evangelism and making disciples. Do you want to make a difference for truth in a world full of fakes? Invest yourself in Jesus' mission. Invest yourself in Jesus' mission. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And where are we going to go from here? Okay, well, I hope you'll come back. Well, next week, we do not have class because we have VBS next week. All right, and so uh, next week, this auditorium will be all decorated. There'll be a whole host of kids in here. And some of you will be here as well to help us. In fact, don't forget, after class, we're going to have a quick VBS meeting in here. I'm going to give you kind of the lowdown of what we're doing. All right, so the time after that, we're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation period. And what a glorious return that's going to be. <laughs> I hope that you'll come and join us for that, for that study. Let me just kind of, uh, if, you have your, if you have your sheet there, go ahead and look at the back real quick. Let me give you your grad level challenge this week. Okay, give you your uh, review questions there. Okay, your grad level challenge. Um, in my modern cults class that I teach, um, I do touch on oneness Pentecostalism. Oneness Pentecostalism is actually a really interesting group. Uh, it's kind of a subset of the Pentecostal movement that argues that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three forms of God that manifest themselves at different times. Okay? So it's a little different than God in three persons. Right? It's one God, three forms that show up at different times. Okay? Why would we reject such a teaching? Okay? So this is, what, this is what I want you to do this week. Okay? You're going you're gonna to dip, dip your foot in the water in apologetics this week. Okay? So you're up for taking this grad level challenge. I want you to do a little bit of research. Okay? And then answer the question, based on what we discussed tonight, why would we reject that teaching about the Trinity? How would you respond and refute that? Now, don't just give me your opinion. Okay? You need to back it up from Scripture. I want to know what the text says. I don't want to know what you say. Right? Prove it. Prove it from the text. Okay? But how would you respond if somebody came to you and said, well, I believe that God is one and he just has three different forms, okay, rather than God in three persons. Okay, an interesting question. And if you take that challenge, I think you'll have profitable study this week. And if you have questions, call me. I'm happy to talk to you about it. All right, thank you for your good attention tonight. Uh, we have about 10 minutes to take some questions. So let's do this. Let's pray. And then I'll open it up. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, snide remarks, I'm happy to hear those. All right.